You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Alok Sharma, President of the United Nations Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26, sounded the alarm that this year's climate summit is our last best chance of getting this right. He joins Washington Post Live for a conversation about the issues topping the climate agenda, challenges with COVID-19 accommodations, and his recent efforts to ensure international commitment to climate initiatives. Let's listen. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. Thanks for joining us for a timely discussion about climate change and the upcoming United Nations Summit, COP26. I'm very pleased to welcome today the president of that summit, COP26, Alec Sharma. So a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Ross, thank you very much for having me on. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Well, let's start with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's speech last night before the UN, in which he used some pretty strong language, suggesting that the world needed to grow up in the face of the challenges. What did you make of that speech in that forum? And do you believe it piqued other leaders' interests in coming to COP26 with their game faces on? I thought it was actually a very good speech. I think uh, it's a it's a typical uh, speech that you would hear from Boris Johnson, where uh, he makes uh, and articulates very clearly why we need to take action and, and basically paints the picture of why it's important that we we take action now. Uh, and you know, the prime minister is uh, uh, also echoing what we saw in the report from the IPCC, which uh, came out last month, uh, where uh, you know it was a really a stark warning. To all of us, which is that the, the window uh, on uh, getting uh, to grips with climate change, uh, to ensuring that we are keeping the 1.5 degree uh, limit uh, of global warming within reach is closing. There is still time to act, but this is the decisive decade. And that's why Prime Minister Johnson, uh, the UN Secretary General, I and many others have made the case here this week that we must take action collectively on this, particularly the biggest emitters, the G20 nations accounting for 80% of global emissions. They've all promised they will set out more ambitious plans to cut emissions before COP26, and we need to see that coming forward in the remaining 39 days before COP. Just to get back to that speech last night, have you spoken to Prime Minister Johnson since the speech and asked him about the reaction to it? Uh, I haven't spoken to him. Uh, he was obviously uh, flying back. Uh, there's a time difference, but I have, uh, I have texted him. And can you tell us about the response? Uh, well, I think the response uh, has been been really uh, uh, pretty good in terms of what has come forward from uh, you know people in the UK, and in fact, uh, you know the coverage of it. And you know the prime minister has ever uh, made the, the case for for change in a really powerful way, but in in a way that connects uh, with people around the world. And I think that is what's important for us to recognise that. The reason we need to get to grips with this now is because it matters for absolutely every single person on our planet. Uh, and uh, we know we are already, Francis, at uh, 1.2 degrees uh, above pre-industrial levels in terms of global warming. Now, that may not sound like very much at all, um, but we're seeing the constant consequences of that around the world. You know, you've seen that in the United States, what's happening in terms of uh, the wildfires. We're seeing uh, you know, flooding uh, in China. Uh, you've seen in recent weeks uh, a terrible flooding, a loss of lives and livelihoods. Uh, we've seen the same in Central Europe. Uh, in, uh, in in the UK, um, you know, I hosted a meeting for uh, 
ministers from around the world in July. Uh, and during uh, that period, over a 24-hour period, we had uh, one month's worth of rain fall on London. We had flooding uh, in our city. And so this is something that is being felt around the world. And I have been parts to parts of the world where I have seen uh, uh, you know, very clearly the impacts of climate change and spoken to communities on the front line. I was in, in Nepal uh, a few months ago. I went uh, to meet some mountain communities in the Himalayas. Uh, and uh, you know, these are people who have been displaced from their homes because of a combination of flooding and drought. Uh, you know, I've been to um, Barbuda, an island that was hit in 2017 by a hurricane, Hurricane Irma. And uh, they've had some restoration. But when you drive around, when you walk around that island, it literally feels like the hurricane came in a few weeks ago. And speaking to community leaders there, they made two points to me. One is that lots of people have not been able to come back uh, uh, because of the devastation that's been forced. So you are seeing migration. And I'm afraid that is going to increase uh, as climate uh, events get uh, worse. And the second message they, they said to me was that, please tell the biggest emitters that in the, in, the, in the same way that we are doing our bit, that we are acting, they must also step up to the plate and deliver on the commitments to cut emissions. Yeah, so talking about the biggest emitters, I'd like to ask you about a recent trip to China and a headline this week when President Xi said he would stop investing in coal-fired plants abroad. Um, are you expecting to see President Xi at COP26? Well, firstly, look, I, I've been having a, a discussion with my counterparts in, in China over the past year. Uh, I was there, as you said, a few weeks ago. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the ending of international coal financing, the phase out of domestic coal use was clearly you know, a, a big part of the discussions that I had. So I welcome the statements that have been made by President Xi Jinping. Uh, I think that is a, a big, big signal uh, to the rest of the world about the direction that China wants to go in. But uh, there have been a number of big commitments that have been made by President Xi. Uh, you know, firstly, uh, ensuring that they have carbon neutrality in their economy uh, before 2060, peaking of uh, emissions before 2030, uh, uh, restricting the use of coal over the next five years and then phasing it down from 2026. And the, the point I, I, I made was that, uh, you know, we welcome these commitments. We want to see the detail of this. And really importantly, China, along with every other G20 nation, has committed before COP26 to come forward with uh, ambitious plans to cut emissions by 2030. So that's my big ask. The ball is in their court. We want to see how they return that serve. And do you expect him to show up in person? Well, uh, I, I very much hope that he will. We know that a delegation is coming from China, and China is absolutely critical to this. And I think it will make a big, big positive difference if President Xi Jinping does attend a COP26. And, you know, China is responsible for uh, over a quarter of the world's emissions. Uh, they are one of the biggest economies in the world, uh, and they are absolutely vital to this equation, this, this, this puzzle that we need to solve. Uh, to um, make sure that we have plans to fix climate change. So you are now in the US and I'm sure you've had the opportunity to speak to other leaders who are engaged in the critical work that you're working on. Can you tell us some um, about the discussions you've had so far? So I've, I've uh, had a range of, of discussions. Obviously, I met uh, with my friend John Kerry uh, and uh, I've uh, very much welcomed uh, the commitment that's been made uh, by the, the US in terms of climate finance. Uh, you know, it is, uh, uh, it is an unblocker. Uh, there have been countries that uh, have said that, you know, unless the US and others come forward with more ambitious climate finance commitments, it's going to be very difficult for them to move 
so now there is an opportunity for us to go back to uh, you know, other donor countries to go back to the big emitters and say that, that this is now you know, their chance to come forward with ambition as well. And you know, I've been having this discussion with uh, uh, you know, our US colleagues on finance for some time, uh, the same discussion, frankly, that I've been having with uh, other countries uh, around the world. So I'm pleased with the announcement, uh, and I hope it uh, acts as a spur uh, for others to come forward as well. Um, I've also met uh, you know, many climate vulnerable countries, uh, those in the, the Pacific, the small island states. And the point they always make to me is that when they talk about limiting global temperature rises to 1.5 degrees, they use this phrase 1.5 to stay alive. And it is literally uh, that's uh, what is so important for them. That, that's what it actually means, because, you know, they are seeing sea levels rise uh, and they can see that if uh, we get to global temperatures of 1.5 degrees, they will not have a place to call home. Uh, and that's why it is so acute for them. Uh, and the message that they have been delivering to me consistently is that please ask the, uh, the biggest emitters to come forward as well. Now, these are countries with the moral voice, uh, the moral authority to speak. Uh, but I do see myself as someone who has to help amplify that voice. Uh, and that's what I've been doing over the past year. So uh, Britain uh, now has this role hosting the summit, which will be in early November in Glasgow. In the past, Britain has been part of the EU in many climate ne negotiations. Now it's a small island nation post-Brexit. How has that affected uh, your role and the leverage you can uh, use in persuading other countries to adopt some of these uh, financial and other commitments that you're talking about? Well, I think, Francis, the first thing to say is that we are one of the biggest economies in the world. Uh, we are, uh, uh, you know, uh, members of the, the, the Commonwealth, the, uh, the, the UN, NATO, uh, on the, uh, the, the P5. Uh, so actually, the, the UK uh, is a, a big international player. Um, and, and we were that when we were part of the EU and we, we remain that. Uh, but my role as COP26 president uh, is, of course, uh, a neutral role. It is to um, you know, corral countries together uh, to ensure that we can find a consensus. Uh, and uh, over the past year, I have spoken to well over a hundred governments around the world, uh, leaders, ministers. Uh, I have, uh, in the last eight months, uh, visited around 35 countries, some of them uh, you know, more than once, uh, in terms of getting that message uh, across. Uh, and if you have a look at you know, where we've got to since we took on the COP26 presidency, uh, you know, when, when we assumed this, this role, um, less than 30% of the world economy was covered by a net zero target. We're now 70% of the world economy covered by a net zero target. For the first time ever, uh, uh, we've got a, a, a G7 uh, uh, which is committed to net zero uh, and also has ambitious plans, each of these countries, to cut emissions by 2030, which uh, align with net zero by 2050. And, you know, the Prime Minister Johnson um, has been leading the G7. The UK, of course, chairs that. Uh, we've seen commitments from all the G7 to say that they will not uh, be financing uh, coal projects internationally. Uh, South Korea has done the same. We've now seen the announcement from China. So, you know, we have worked with our friends and partners around the world to shift the dial. But the reality is that we still have a mountain to climb between now and COP26. Uh, and, uh, you know, for me, uh, there are three key asks that I continue to have of countries. One is, please come forward with ambitious plans to cut emissions, uh, and particularly that message is for the G20, which account for 80% of global emissions. 
secondly, uh, you know, for countries, the donor nations, the developed nations to deliver on the finance that's been promised. And as I said, I think the, the US announcement will help uh, in that process. Uh, and thirdly, uh, you know, we, we always talk about the historic Paris Agreement, and it was a historic uh, uh, agreement in 2015. But what we also need to do now is close off some of the detailed rules uh, around uh, some of the elements of what we refer to as the Paris Rulebook. And that's something that we want to try and achieve at COP26 as well. So I'd like to ask a little bit more about the US role here. Of course, we've had a change of administration um, from a, an administration that deprioritized some of the issues you're talking about and backed out of the Paris Agreement. There's been a great change, but what is the what are global leaders looking to the US for? Leadership, uh, finance, what role should the US be playing going ahead? I think all of the above. Uh, and I think, uh, as I said, the US has stepped up in terms of finance. Uh, uh, you know, John Kerry, I know, has been going around the world as well, uh, taking that message uh, to, to, to countries. You've seen the uh, commitments that the US has made uh, in terms of uh, its own uh, 2030 emission reductions targets, uh, net zero by 2050. Uh, I mean, all that is good. But I think the, the, the message here is for every country to play its part. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's not just one or two of us. Everyone needs to play their part. And you will have seen there was a report put out by the United Nations, which uh, was pretty sobering uh, a few weeks ago, which said that if you look at all the 2030 uh, emissions reduction targets that countries around the world have put forward, um, there are a, a range of countries that have put forward more ambition, but some still haven't come forward with ambition. You add all of that up, and it says that we will, instead of cutting emissions by 2030, we're going to see a 16% rise in emissions. But you know, the, the positive aspect of that report was that there are 70 nations around the world, uh, you know, including the United Kingdom, which has come forward with ambitious plans to cut emissions by 2030, and then also have plans to go to net zero and have strategies in place to do this. And if you take the impact of what uh, you know, they're going to do, you would see a 26% reduction on emissions by 2030. So, you know, countries have shown a, a political will to take this forward and to take action. What we now need is for every country to do that. And my message again is very clear. It is the G20. That is what the climate vulnerable countries also want. We recognize that that's where uh, we need to have more delivery. And I hope that that will come forward before COP26. So just one more question about the US. Having seen these changes, these about faces on Paris and other climate commitments over the past few years, do other countries have faith that the US, of, in the longevity of the US commitments, and do you have faith? Uh, look, I, I uh, have, have confidence that uh, President Biden, uh, my friend John Kerry, are going to deliver on the commitments that they have made, and I think it's vitally important that they do so. Um, you know, I, I, I look to the UK, for instance. Um, over the last few years, we have developed a political consensus across all the major parties that tackling climate change is vitally important. Uh, that we can demonstrate green growth. Uh, you know, in our in our country, we have managed to grow our economy, our GDP, by almost 80% uh, over a 30-year period, and yet we managed to cut emissions by over 40%. The UK uh, is very much a, a poster child for, for green growth. Uh, you know, we've now got the biggest offshore wind sector in the world. It is possible to do this. Uh, and what I'm really encouraged by is that when I've gone around the world, is the private sector is singing from the same hymn sheet as governments, as civil society now. And you're seeing a huge enthusiasm from the private sector as well to drive change. 
And I think that will make a big difference uh, in the US in, and in other countries. So as we're seeing new climate pledges coming in from countries around the world in advance of COP26, how confident are you that they're based on solid data about their own emissions? Well, so one of the, the issues that uh, we need to uh, close off uh, the Paris Rule Book is on transparency, uh, where precisely uh, this point is that you have countries making commitments. Uh, we then want to see uh, them providing the information in terms of transparency as to what progress they're making. Uh, and uh, for uh, you know the, the process of, uh, of uh, stop takes every few years, which uh, has been set out under uh, the Paris Agreement, will then tell us whether countries have made the progress and they have delivered on the uh, commitments that they have made. But of course, we need to ensure that we close off and reach agreement on uh, these uh, the, the, this whole issue around transparency at uh, COP26. So this summit, of course, was delayed for a year. Um, there has been there have been questions about making sure that uh, with the pandemic, um, it's safe for people to come. Can you talk briefly about the kinds of precautions you're taking to make sure a vast gathering like this can be conducted safely? Well, Francis, you're right. You know, we've delayed this by a year, uh, and uh, we know that climate change hasn't taken time off during that period. In fact, uh, we, we've seen uh, even more uh, ferocious climate events in, in just about every country in the world. Uh, so countries that I've spoken to, everybody wants this to be a physical event. And ultimately, this is a negotiation uh, amongst almost 200 nations. And for me, it's really important that those developing countries, the climate vulnerable countries sit at the same table as the biggest emitters, as the biggest economies are able to look them in the eye. So we are planning for a physical event uh, and safety is paramount for us. safety of people who are attending, but of course, safety of the people in, in Glasgow in the United Kingdom. Um, we are, are, are ensuring that uh, you know, anyone who's an accredited delegate who is uh, not able to get vaccinated in their home nation uh, can get vaccinated through a program that we're running with the United Nations. Uh, we've had uh, you know, people who have applied for this. And we're rolling that out now, and I'm confident that uh, all of those who have applied will get vaccinated and be able to attend COP26. Uh, we are ensuring that um, uh, you know, if people are coming from uh, what you know, we refer to in the UK as a red list country, we have a traffic light system uh, in terms of uh, where countries are. Um, for countries, for delegates coming from red list countries, we are saying that they will need to quarantine for five days uh, if they uh, have had a vaccine. Uh, if they haven't, for 10 days, I think that will be really uh, uh, useful in ensuring that uh, we are keeping people safe. Uh, and uh, then, um, you know, there's going to be a daily testing regime as well to come into uh, the, the, uh, the part of the, uh, the, the conference where the negotiations are going to be taking place, the blue zone. Um, and there are a range of other measures that we're putting in to make sure that this is a, a safe and, and secure uh, event. And I just make this point, which is that, uh, you know, any country that has organized a COP knows just how challenging, even in normal times it is, uh, to organize an event uh, of this magnitude. And we are doing this uh, with, uh, you know, COVID. Uh, looming over us uh, as, as well. And I've been very pleased by the conversations I've had with ministers around the world who have acknowledged the fact that the UK has really stepped up to the plate uh, and uh, uh, that you know, we, are, we are doing uh, you know, a, a lot to ensure that uh, this event can go ahead physically. And it's really important that it does. So given those measures, the vaccination and the quarantine, is there any truth to climate activists' concerns that poor nations won't get there and that this summit could actually increase inequities? Well, I think if you if you look at what uh, um, uh, nations have said, uh, particularly climate vulnerables, they've said they want this to be a physical event. 
and uh, we're ensuring that people who need to get vaccinated are getting vaccinated. Uh, we're working to make sure that, um, you know, particularly those in uh, in, in countries uh, uh, that are uh, you know, somewhere away, and uh, for instance, in, in the Pacific, uh, which we are we are working with them to ensure that they are able to attend. Uh, and certainly, from the the statistics that I've seen in terms of of countries coming, uh, you know, I'm confident that we will have people who want to come. Uh, they will be able to attend. We've already got uh, uh, 100 world leaders who have committed to come in person. Uh, you know, I think we will see more than 100 world leaders coming. So we are we are ramping up efforts to make sure that this is as inclusive a COP as possible. Uh, and for me, that's really vitally important that uh, this is an event where everyone is able to come together and have their say. So you've mentioned your meetings with uh, the climate envoy John Kerry and Biden's commitment. How are you persuading other countries to take on those sorts of commitments? What's your language to them? Well, my, my language has been very consistent. And I think, uh, you know, people have appreciated that the UK ask has been entirely consistent in terms of emissions reductions, in terms of finance from donor nations, uh, in terms of countries coming forward with plans to adapt to climate change, and of course, working with them so we can uh, try and find some landing grounds ahead of COP26 on these, these complex rules that we need to agree ahead of COP26. Um, I have done a lot of listening, and I think it's really important as a neutral presidency that we listen to what countries have to say. Uh, I've also uh, uh, been very clear that uh, where countries have taken uh, positive action, where they've made commitments, I've been very happy to acknowledge that in public. But of course, uh, you know, you are able to have in this role uh, a opportunity to have very frank discussions uh, with countries about what they need to do. And that's what I've been doing. Now, ultimately, every country I talk to recognizes why this is important for them to do this for themselves, for their own populations, let alone for the rest of the world. So um, what they now need to do is to show that political will at the leader level and, and make those, those bold commitments. And I think as Prime Minister Johnson underlined in his speech to the UN General Assembly, this is not a zero-sum game. You can cut emissions, you can have a healthier world at the same time as growing the economy, at the same time as having green jobs. And that's the future, is building back better, building back greener uh, that I want to see around the world. So I'd like to ask you about ESGs, the economic, social and governance factors um, that companies can, can use particularly about transparency, which is what you uh, talked about earlier on. How can we be sure that there are measurement standards that companies adopt and use going ahead when they claim to be ESG compliant? Yes, yeah, so Francis, I think this is a, a, a very uh, important point. In the same way that, uh, as we've just discussed, we want to have confidence that countries are delivering uh, on the commitments that they've made. We obviously want the same from, from companies. We've been running a, a UN campaign for Race to Zero, uh, which companies uh, sign up to um, and they commit to go to net zero by 2050. Um, but this isn't some sort of you know, vague commitment. This is based uh, on, uh, on, on science, the commitments uh, showing they have to demonstrate um, you know, what they are going to do in the near term as they build out to 2050. Uh, and uh, you know, this is a campaign which has had uh, lots of companies, the biggest companies around the world sign up to uh, we are seeing uh, non-state actors, uh, cities, regions, universities sign up to this. Uh, and also, you know, finance is a, a vital part of this. So we've been working with uh, Mark Carney, the, the former governor of the Bank of England, who is uh, uh, Prime Minister Johnson's uh, 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 private finance advisor on COP26. 
And, uh, you know, with our teams, we have now got uh, around $90 trillion of assets committed to go to net zero by 2050. I mean, that is really, really big. But what we now need to do is ensure that those funds can also find their way to developing countries. We know that it is going to need trillions of dollars a year uh, uh, to ensure that we have climate resilient infrastructure and projects around the world. Uh, there is a wall of money out there. We now need to work together with the multilateral development banks, together with governments, to ensure that we uh, connect uh, the capital uh, with the requirement for projects around the world. I have time for just one question, and I'm afraid it has to be a brief answer. How will you measure success? What has to happen at COP26 that will say that was a successful summit? We need to be able to credibly say that we have kept 1.5 alive. Uh, and the way that we are going to have to do that is look at the commitments that have been made. Uh, and then if there is a gap, uh, we have to set out uh, as countries how we're going to close that gap in this decisive decade. Uh, I mean, basically, time is out. Uh, there are not going to be any second chances, Francis. So we have to get this right at COP26. President Sharma, time is out. Those are pretty sobering words to take away from our discussion. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. That's all we have time for. Although I had many more questions I would have loved to ask President Sharma. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to see more from Washington Post Live, please go to WashingtonPostLive.com where you can register for upcoming events. I'm Francis Deed Sellers and thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.